It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 26th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Immigration has never been more challenging. Yesterday, at least seven people arrived into Ireland seeking international protection. They were processed in City West, but then sent on their way to fend for themselves. They were not from Ukraine. I want to raise, ask the Taoiseach about the incredible decision to say that people who are coming from Syria or refugees from elsewhere in the world other than Ukraine are going to have to sleep on the streets when Ukrainians, correctly, but it should be the case for everybody, are going to have emergency accommodation available to them. I mean, how can you justify such discrimination? Is it because the Ukrainians are European? Is it because they are white? Why is it okay for anybody to have to sleep on the streets? And do you not accept that it's not necessary for anybody? Irish, Syrian, Ukrainian, nobody needs to be on the street. That's People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy asking uh, the Taoiseach about this appalling reality people seeking refuge here face when they arrive into Ireland and are then forced to sleep on the streets. We're facing an unprecedented situation, um, a refugee crisis Uh, the likes of which Europe hasn't seen since World War II, um, the likes of which we've never seen in Ireland. Uh, And in the past year, we've taken in about 100,000 people, uh, mostly from Ukraine, but also from other parts of the world, uh, provided them with shelter, with heat and light, with education, with healthcare, uh, in many cases with employment. Leo Bradker outlining some of uh, the challenges, but the Taoiseach says the government wants to help. There is no shortage of care uh, or compassion when it comes to this government in this country. The problem here is that care and compassion don't put a roof over people's heads. There is a shortage of capacity uh, and we are running out of accommodation uh, for people uh, who come to Ireland. So why is there accommodation for people coming from Ukraine if there's no accommodation available for people seeking international protection when they're coming from other countries? People who come to Ireland from Ukraine have a different legal status. Uh, they are beneficiaries of temporary protection uh, and are legally entitled to be here. But doesn't that beg the question if people fleeing countries like Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen or elsewhere are not equally entitled to refuge 
cheer as the people fleeing the war in Ukraine. When it comes to people who come here uh, claiming international protection or seeking international protection, uh, it's less clear they may or may not be genuine refugees. And it does put them in a different category uh, than those coming from Ukraine. The Taoiseach Leo Vradker speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. He was pres- responding to people before Prophet TD Paul Murphy. Paul Murphy is on uh, the line and uh, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme today. I think you were appalled by what the Taoiseach said. You said it was a scandalous response and that the government is bowing to the far right. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Yeah, I think it's really outrageous. We have a situation now where we know that a number of people have arrived from countries like Syria or Yemen, where there are horrific wars taking place, like is facing the people in Ukraine. And yet these people are being turned away from accommodation. They're being given a 20 euro uh, Duns voucher. They're being told where the Capuchin Care Centre is and they're being told they'll send you an email whenever there is any accommodation available. So people are fleeing war, coming to this country, and are being put onto the streets. And I think that's a horrendous situation. I mean, it was the government itself which predicted last year that we might have 100,000 asylum seekers come to Ireland in the course of 2022. And we didn't have that many. We had around 70,000 people come. But the government didn't put the planning in place to make sure that we're able to give people, you know, the very basic essentials in terms of shelter for for people. Mm. And I think that this language of, you know, the Ukrainians are legally entitled to be here, correct, 100%. Mm. I think it's, you know, correct that the Ukrainians should get appropriate accommodation and so on. Well, it's a a legal status, as uh, Taoiseach explained. Uh, It it is legally the case, their status is uh, that they have temporary protection. Others are seeking asylum. Yeah, but but the implication from what Leo Varadkar said is that the others may not be legally entitled to be here, and that's just not, that's not accurate. That's not true at all. They are 100% legally entitled to be here. People are legally entitled to come and apply for asylum, they then go through a process which decides at the end, are they refugees or are they not? If, their, they're applica- the if, if their application is denied, uh, well, then they're not legally entitled to be here and they'll be deported. Exactly. Right. But anyone who you know comes off a plane now from you know fleeing from one of these situations is 100% legally entitled uh, to be here. And I think it is... I think the government is flirting with a very dangerous rhetoric which is suggesting that the reason we have the housing crisis is because of the influx of uh, refugees and that's just not true. We had this housing crisis before the war in Ukraine started before the number of refugees that have been uh, coming and I think the government is looking to distract from the reality of their failures to address the unused planning permissions, to address the 50,000 homes that have been vacant for six years uh, or more and I don't think we should accept that anybody you know, Irish, Syrian, Yemeni, uh, Ukrainian should be on the streets in this country. There's a a very important part of your argument that we didn't hear in uh, the clips at at the beginning of uh, the programme because, uh, as you've just said, you don't believe that anybody should be on the streets, no matter where they've come from, if they were born here or in Ukraine or elsewhere. Uh, And you believe that they shouldn't be on the streets because there isn't this capacity crisis that the Taoiseach mentioned yesterday. Uh, We haven't run out of accommodation. You believe that there's 50,000 homes that have been vacant for six years or more. Where are they? They're right across the country. I mean, I, I know one right around the corner from uh, me that has been left uh, 
empty and going derelict for um, I think probably this one is in the in the six years or, or more category or certainly getting close to it. We know this from the census. So in total there's about 160,000 vacant homes but there's 50,000 that have turned up in the last two censuses as being vacant so therefore they've been vacant for six years or, or more. Mm. And you know I that doesn't make sense from the point of view of a society that is dealing with a tremendous housing crisis, 11,500 people in emergency accommodation. That's people, you know, Irish, like as in non-asylum seekers. Um, it doesn't make sense as a society that we just allow these homes to sit vacant. We think we need to have use it or lose it legislation, whereby if you don't use it, well, then the state will compulsorily purchase it. It'll pay you market value for it, but then we'll be able to, to use it to actually uh, house people as opposed to having a situation of people in, you know, poor emergency homeless accommodation, mm. poor emergency uh, seeker accommodation, like is the case in, in City West, or in tents, you know, people over 100 yeah. refugees are in tents, or on the on the street. Uh, on the street. Uh, the problem, though, I, I take it with uh, the 50,000 homes that you're talking about is that they're not deemed fit for standard. Uh, the standard uh, that is expected uh, for uh, renting out accommodation to people uh, wouldn't be met. Uh, and you could say, well, what's uh, the point in having those standards if it means that you're on the streets instead of having a, a poor standard of roof over your head? A roof over your head is a, a roof over your head. But it, I think as things stand, because of the standards that are set, whether the person who owns the property uses it, as you say, or loses it and the government buys it off them, uh, one or other is going to have to pay for the refurbishments, aren't they? Yeah, but I mean, paying for refurbishment is a, is a lot better deal, lot better value economically and actually environmentally um, than buying, building new homes. You know what I mean? That's, it's the quickest way that we can build, we can get extra homes available for people and address the housing crisis um, and address the needs of those who are fleeing from war, war and, and persecution. Mm. I mean, the, the issue is the government just isn't doing anything about this issue of vacant homes. I'm not saying that if the government adopted our policy next week, these 50,000 homes become available. But they're not doing anything to make the point where the 50,000 homes or most of the 50,000 homes become available as soon as possible. They're just, and this issue has been sitting there, continues to sit there. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, there's a difference between, yes, there is a need for emergency accommodation. That's in the, the hotels. There are still yeah. other hotel rooms available in terms of short-term emergency accommodation. There's a question of modular housing, which is slightly longer-term issue. There's a question of using public buildings, some of which remain empty. But the kind of more medium-term solution is using the vacant homes and then getting, you know, the, the yeah. private developers are sitting on 80,000 full planning permissions are not building. Okay. is getting building going. Okay, that's well and good. And perhaps there's a lot of merit in your argument. But even at that, that would take some time to turn around to these properties. We are in an emergency, as the Taoiseach rightly said. And we had this very embarrassing situation, I think, yesterday, when the United Nations Committee on the, right of, uh, on the Rights of Children asked the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, if we were going to turn children away who were fleeing from war zones, uh, seeking international protection in this country because of this crisis that we're in. Uh, could there be a temporary situation uh, where these properties may not be up to the standards expected if you're going to rent them out, but they may be structurally sound and may put a roof over people's heads? Could they be used for immigrants coming into the country? 
Yeah, I mean, the very, very basic, you know, the very, very basic, the starting point is to give everyone shelter. So, you know, it is better for people to be overcrowded than to be on the streets. Mm. So, like, that's the starting point. And I don't believe that it is necessary to simply turn people away into the streets. So whatever short-term measures we need to mean that, that, that people have the possibility of being in accommodation, even if it's not what we would like it to be, we have to make that available. We shouldn't say, oh, because of where you're coming from, you're going to be on the streets. So that is preferable. And then we put the work in place to make sure that, look, people have decent standards of accommodation. People aren't looking for, for luxury, but like basic, habitable accommodation, what humans uh, deserve to have. Like That's obviously what we need to, to put in place. But like it should not be too much to ask that people have the very, very basics of a roof over their head if they they want to access it. Hmm. Uh, and you're concerned, obviously, that this is music to the ears of uh, the far-right fascists. I am, um, because there, there is, you know, a, a, a definitely a minority uh, view, um, but that is going around trying to whip up protests against uh, refugees. And there was a protest last night outside City West, people who were fleeing from horrific situations. I was part of a solidarity protest to say, you know, to reject the chance of out, out, out and to say refugees are welcome and that we have enough resources here to provide homes and services mm. for all. Um, but I, I think the government is playing a dangerous game of adopting some of their language, for example, yeah. in accepting that there may be people illegally here, which is simply that's just factually not the case or in suggesting that these people are in some way responsible for the housing crisis to wash their own hand of responsibility. Mm. And I think all the evidence from across Europe is this is what happens. Far right emerges, the so-called centre-right then seeds ground to them um, in an attempt perhaps not to allow support to go to them, but it just legitimises their rhetoric and enables them to go further, and then the whole political landscape shifts further and further to the right. That's what happened in, in France, for example, in the kind of relationship between Le Pen and then the Macron government mm. and the other governments and before him. Why are we allowing them to protest outside of people's homes? Because City West is now where people live. Uh, I mean, there's no sense of decency about these protests. There are people who have no compassion or understanding, for that matter, of world affairs. Uh, why are they allowed to intimidate people uh, with this vile, vulgar uh, hate uh, and vitriol uh, that we've seen so much of recently? Well, I think it's very bad that they do it. And um, I think, you know, any... Can we not put exclusion zones, though, outside of people's homes? I mean, I, I, I think people do have the right to protest. Um, they don't have the right to intimidate people. They don't have the right to uh, abuse uh, people. And I would say to people, you know, that there are people who perhaps won't agree with me on, on lots of things, and um, mm. perhaps won't even agree with me about the question of refugees. Mm. But to even say to them, look, do you really want to be outside someone's home shouting, you know, intimidating what, what, abuse at them when they're fleeing from horrifying yeah. uh, situations? They, they, were outside a con- they were outside a convent last week. I mean, this is the big yeah. mouse and the layabouts. I mean, there's not much that goes on between the years with a lot of these fellows, but they were outside a convent thinking that there was refugees inside and there was elderly nuns inside. They were outside a, a hotel uh, where cleaners had, or some other building, but cleaners had come mm-hmm. to clean it and uh, they yeah. thought they were refugees and so on. Uh, I don't know if you saw the story in the Irish Examiner today, maybe you were aware of it before this morning, but it was a hundred masked men outside of Desi Ellis's house uh, on Tuesday night, uh, apparently, uh, uh, because uh, of his 
position on immigration, I mean, that's just outrageous. Outrageous for Desi Ellis, outrageous for his family, outrageous for his neighbours, outrageous for all of us. It is, yeah. No, I was I was watching some of the, the live streams and so on the night before last where this was taking place. They were, they were outside his, his office, um, but nonetheless... Oh, and they, were, and they were threatening to go on to his home. Threatening that's to right. go to his yeah, homes, yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's a video threatening Philly McMahon, basically effectively threatening to burn down Philly McMahon's gym, is what's implied. Um, threats to the centre that they... There aren't even any refugees mm. there. There's a place where they think refugees may be, may be put... Um, and the guy who's involved in leading this effectively on the Tuesday night, he, he also has made a video threatening nurses if they go on strike, saying if nurses are to go on strike over the health service, he'll be there and effectively threatening violence uh, against them. Mm. And I think it is it, it is the case, and for example, the case last night, that it is the opposition that are being targeted by these people. Mm. Um, Sinn Féin, people before uh, profit, not the government. And, and, the immigrants, be, and the immigrants, and the immigrants. Oh, and the immigrants as, as a number one target, to be, mm. to be 100% clear, absolutely. And, and the um, fear that people must feel when there's a mob of yobs outside shouting, go home, we don't want you here, out, 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 and all that sort of stuff, uh, must just be dreadful, particularly when you're talking about people who've already been traumatised coming from terrible places in the world. And quite often, it's under the Irish flag. Why are these people allowed to defile our flag? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think you can have a law to stop people um, using the Irish flag, but I I think what we need to have is, you know... Why not? You're you're not allowed... Why not? You're not allowed to fly a a swastika in Germany, and if you're in one of these immigration centres, and I've said it before, uh, it must be very different than the Jews in the 1930s looking at the swastikas. Yeah, well, well, I think the vast majority of Irish people reject this source. Of course they do. Most Um, most people are decent uh, and honest, hard-working people, uh, sensible people. That's the majority of Irish people. We're not talking about anybody who falls into any of those categories. Exactly. So, but I think what we need to do is have all those people, many of whom are sitting at home, horrified by what they hear about these, by the scenes they might see on, on social media. We need to ask those people to come out and express the view, to make it clear that, look, the majority in society does not go along with these kind of hate-filled, mm. divisive rhetoric and instead think we have to welcome people who are fleeing from horrific situations mm. and don't accept that these people are the problem, that these people are worried about the housing crisis, these people are worried about the health crisis, because it's simply not the case. And mm-hmm. if you look at the people involved in whipping up these protests, I mean, I, I've been involved in housing movements in this country for a long time. I've never seen any of these people. These people are not interested in the crises that affect ordinary people, except mm-hmm. as an excuse to whip things up and blame those at the very, very bottom, the most you know, poorest, most depressed, uh, mm-hmm. most, one of the most difficult situations in society, as opposed to pointing the anger upwards at the government, at the private developers, mm-hmm. at the big corporate landlords and so on. The asylum seekers in Terman Fackin in County Louth uh, had been saying uh, that they wanted a chance to meet the community and integrate. It was a wonderful thing over the weekend where they teamed up with the tidy towns and went around and cleaned Terman Fackin up. The amount of rubbish that they picked up, bags and bags and bags of rubbish. But people in the village really loved what they were doing. There was people going by, blowing horns and welcoming them, getting to meet them and getting to know them and starting to realise the advantages that come with this and the diversity that comes with these people coming into our country. That's exactly it. These people want to work, be that, you know, in a normal job or in the community or whatever. 
Um, and, and we have to ensure that they're integrated. Uh, like, it is a problem that at the moment, for the first six months, nobody is allowed to work. Then after that, there's kind of a, an application process they have to go through to be able to work. That reduces the integration. It means that they're stuck in the centres. Uh, those coming from outside of Ukraine are on, I think it's about 30 euros uh, a week. So it's extremely small amount of money that they're relying on. You know, I mean, they, they don't have the money to go and integrate in cafes or whatever mm-hmm. with, with people. Um, so I, I would appeal to communities like your tidy towns, like your community centres, like your residence associations, to reach out to people who are now in our communities to welcome them in, because these people aren't a problem, and they're you know they, they will bring something in terms of the work they want to do and in terms of the experiences that they that they bring that actually make our community stronger. Okay, we leave there for the moment, Paul. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the program. Paul Murphy is a People Before Profit TD for Dublin Southwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Ukraine is saying it needs Western fighter jets. Uh, These are planes, obviously, that they could use in the war against Russia. That's in addition to the tanks that are on their way, these killing machines, lethal weapons of war that have now been pledged to, to Ukraine from the United States, Germany, Poland, Finland, Norway, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. Will this result in Ukraine being able to defend its sovereignty as is being claimed or will it result in an escalation of this conflict into an all-out war between NATO and Russia, which could prove to be catastrophic. Let's speak to Jim Roach, PRO with the Irish anti-war movement. A very good morning to you, Jim Roach, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What are your thoughts on this? Good morning, Michael. Uh, my thoughts are that um, it will. it is a, yet another escalation of this horrible war and we don't think it's a good idea, um, put it mildly. Um, and you mentioning that the planes is even scarier, and they have been mentioned. I heard uh, uh, a Ukrainian MP uh, on another station last night, Ima Sovzun, so- uh, saying that they would they have been asking for planes for a long time. So obviously, if that were to happen, I mean that that is essentially World War Three, you know. Uh, but this, this alone is... is um, it's not far off, is it? It's not far off it at all. Mm. And uh, the, the idea, and that's why I think there was reluctance and there's a huge debate going on in mm. Germany. Germany is very divided on this because of its history and the idea of, of German tanks now going, going eastwards across, across Poland into Ukraine uh, bring, will bring back a lot of memories of the Second World War. So... Um, I, I think it's very, very dangerous, and we, the Irish anti war, we're about to issue a press release. We condemn it, and we, particularly, particularly when there's no attempt at all to uh, bring the sides together to have peace talks like there were back in March. There's no attempt by NATO. Mm. NATO is all set to punish Russia, and we, let's, I say it again, we have condemned. Uh, the Russian invasion right from the start, and we still do. We call for uh, Russian military to withdraw, but uh, NATO has um, is, is um, not not entirely neutral on this. Let's say. Well, no, um, um, I, I, I can understand why the Russians uh, would think that, especially after this decision to send in these 
I don't, you know, know anything about tanks, but I mean, these are very serious, serious weapons, and there's no doubt about that. I, I mean, when they're talking about uh, trained personnel, Ukrainian military needing training to be able yeah, to yeah. deal with these massive machines uh, of uh, destruction. Uh, they're very, very serious. Uh, but from a Russian military perspective, from Vladimir Putin's perspective, I, I think if I was looking at this, I'd prefer NATO to send in troops than these big machines. Um, possibly. Look, I, 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 again, I'm not a military person mm. like yourself, and but I have read a bit about them and the, the, the Abram, the, the German Leopard tanks are the, the first ones that are going in. Then the US Abram tanks are even more sophisticated again. But that's all okay. I mean, people can, like, these military people can say all this stuff, but there's no um, guarantee that this this will that this strategy will even work militarily. Yeah. I mean, Russian planes may be able to knock them out. You know, uh, I don't know. Or Russian may have other tanks that haven't come on the battlefield yet. I mean, we don't know. That's the, that's the, that's the problem. And there's all these claims and counterclaims being made, uh, and the Ukraine may get some strategic advantage straight away, but then then they start getting knocked out. Like, we just don't know. And uh, I, I'm not going to speculate. I, I think what we do know is that it'll cause total mayhem and more and more Ukrainians will get killed, more of Ukraine will be destroyed and more Russian conscripts will get killed. Or that there'll be attacks uh, elsewhere. Well, that's the danger as well. And uh, we're, looking, are, we're looking at the attacks in Kiev this morning and other parts of Ukraine. And this is in retaliation, I'm sure, for for this announcement by uh, Germany and the US and other NATO countries. so mm. We're talking about a, a, a nuclear country, of course, uh, and uh, one that is very well equipped and could decide to strike outside of Ukraine. Well, that's, that's a possibility. And the thing is that Ukraine has been encouraged to strike, uh, to strike, um, for, for example, in, in, in Crimea, uh, you know, which w- was um, annexed in 2014. It, it wasn't part of this, this current invasion. And that, I think that alone is, is very dangerous, you know. And there's even talk of it being... Uh, I, I did read one, one report on the tanks that uh, the capability or the, the, the weaponry generally that's been sent now to by NATO to the Ukrainian military. It's saying that it, is, it does give them the possibility of attacking within Russia. And once you, you get to that level, well, then Russia will say, well, fine, I, we will attack the, the countries that are sending these. So, so that's the, it's this constant escalation that's going on. And it's so uh, frightening and desperate. And uh, we really, like, we call, we call along with other groups, you know, we, we call for this to stop, to, to peace talks to begin. Uh, and it's very interesting, like the the media narrative on this. And I want to compliment mm. you, Michael, for having us on fairly frequently. But a thousand U.S. multi-denominational state leaders joined the International Peace Bureau's call for Christmas truce in December. Now, this wasn't even reported in the in the mainstream media. Not alone was it heeded by U.S. political, but it wasn't even picked up by the media. Um, Putin offered a ceasefire recently. Okay, why was this opportunity not used? Uh, the, the, the agreement to export grain from Ukraine, I've mentioned it previously to you, it's overseen by Russian, Ukrainian and Turkish and UN officials, seems to be working peacefully. 
Why not build on this? Why not get back to the 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 Turkish brokered um, peace deal that, that was on the table in March? And of course, there's a very well known reason why we're not getting back because NATO, particularly the US and Britain, want to punish Russia. They want to weaken Russia, uh, and they've they've told President Zelensky and other. Uh, Ukraine leaders, that they will give them all the weapons they want. Boris Johnson trotted off to uh, Ukraine in earlier, I think it was the 10th of April, trotted off to tell, uh, I have the words here, mm. uh, he, he talked that the collective West sought a, a chance to press Russia uh, and with, they offered offering them all the weapons that they that they could possibly have, you know, that they could possibly give them, and that's what's happening here. And it's just one escalation after another. So, so Russian escalates or carries out some atrocity in in eastern Ukraine. NATO then escalates it uh, with you know um, tanks and pos- the possibility of of planes. And one has one has to ask, where is this all going? Mm. Uh, I mean, the figures are colossal. Like, I mean, I've read a figure yes, of 200,000 Russian and Ukrainian soldiers either dead or wounded, mm. and 30,000 recorded civilian casualties. There's probably much more. Yeah. I mean, that's a shocking figure. And we, we have to say, you know, our, our attitude is talks, not tanks. That's what we're saying in our press release this morning. We have to stop this. Uh, it's it's not it's not going to help the people of Ukraine. More and more Ukrainians are going to die. The country's going to be devastated. Mm. Uh, there, there has to be a ceasefire in these talks. Okay, and there's the potential that weapons will be given to Ukraine, which could be launched from Ukraine into Russia. Uh, there's uh, speculation. I know, I've mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, Britain yeah. could be giving Ukraine long-range missiles. Yes. Uh, 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 Very dangerous. The, the yeah. Americans uh, are talking about long-range drones, uh, and they're also talking about sending technicians in to help the Ukrainians who wouldn't have uh, the wherewithal to operate uh, these machines. Uh, I mean, that is a NATO war on Russia, is it not? Well, look, we, we've all always said there was an element of this that was a proxy war. Now, at the beginning, we, we were very, we still are very critical of, of Russia's invasion. And one could say, OK, it's 70-30. It's an imperial power invading a, a sovereign country on, on its border. 70-30, and it's, but it also has this proxy war element. That's now moving more and more. It's becoming more apparent that this is a proxy war, and it's 70-30 the other way, mm. perhaps. Where uh, and those examples that you gave are so obvious uh, that it is a proxy war, and I think more and more people and more and more commentators, maybe in the West, are are, are starting to to see that. So I, I'm hoping there'll be more and more calls for peace, but okay. uh, it's it's very dangerous. All very right, dangerous. Jim, I have to leave Thank there. You. Thank you very much indeed, Jim Roach, PRO with the Irish Anti-War Movement. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, just a, a few comments that have come to us uh, this morning. Thanks if you have uh, been in touch. Uh, a text uh, from Ella who says there were bombs blowing up in Poland. Uh, they've had uh, an attack already, intentional or otherwise. Uh, but uh, she says she s- says we still don't know who was responsible for it. If NATO sends these leopards, these tanks into Ukraine, they're be war on 
NATO ter- territory. There's going to be war on Polish territory. Uh, and uh, during all of that, uh, Poland will get caught up between Russia and Germany. Poland will be ruined and we're all terrified. Thank you for that. Pat McDade says, Michael, I'll have a little bit more respect for Paul Murphy's views and political protests after he publicly apologises to two women, two workers, two socialists, two trade unionists who were trapped in their car for some three hours during a protest orchestrated by Paul Murphy. Uh, there were at least seven male supporters at that protest uh, which, saw, which saw Karen O'Connell and Joan Burton, minister at the time, uh, in their car in Jobstown back in 2014. Uh, a Navin listener says, Michael, there has to be some balanced debate on people coming into Ireland. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you and I hope uh, our Navin listener will agree that there is balanced debate on this programme because uh, we're ignoring the big mouths and the layabouts and uh, their vile hatred uh, that they're expressing about people they know nothing about or the situations that they're fleeing from. Uh, and thank you as well for your texts to the programme this morning. Now, we've been talking an awful lot about Pascal Donoghue and ethics legislation. We're going to be talking again today about ethics legislation because we'll be talking about Sinn Féin and its oversights. Uh, but yesterday in the Dáil, there was a, another issue that maybe you'd forgotten about, uh, and that uh, was the issue that led to Damien English, a Fine Gael TD in Mead West, being forced to sign, resign his position as a Minister of State. Propose to bring in Brendan Howland's Public Sector Standards Bill to ensure that the necessary reforms to SIPO will be enacted. And in that context, last week I raised with you the issue pertaining to Dep- Deputy Damien English, your party colleague, who, as we know, resigned from his ministerial post due to the revelations that he'd submitted incorrect information on a planning application to Meath County Council in 2008. During leaders' questions last week, I asked you if the government and your party tolerated behaviour because we know that false information resulted in his grant of being granted planning permission for a one-off dwelling to which he was not entitled. I want to follow up with you to ask what further action you propose to take, particularly at a time when we know thousands of couples and families have been refused planning permission to build homes across rural Ireland and 40% of those under 35 continue to live with their parents because they can't find homes due to the housing crisis. So I want to ask you, what what further action, Taoiseach, you propose to take in respect of a minister who appears to have benefited from a false planning application and who has quietly resigned as as minister with no further action? the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Ivana Backage, asking uh, the leader of Fine Gael what his party was going to do about the way Damien English behaved. Thanks, Deputy. Just in relation to the legislative question, um, our plan is to bring forward our own legislation uh, to reform the Ethics Acts uh, and to strengthen SIPO, uh, and we'd hope to do that, and we'd expect to do that uh, during the course of this year, and uh, Minister McGrath is working on that um, at the moment. In relation to Deputy English, uh, Deputy English resigned... Uh, resigned as a minister, uh, is no longer uh, a minister of state. Uh, any further action uh, would be a matter for uh, Mead County Council, um, not not for the government to take. Not for the government to take. I don't know how you hear that, but uh, the way I hear it, uh, for what it's worth, is that at this stage, uh, because it's been asked a few times, at this stage, uh, there is no consequence for Damien English in Fine Gael. Fine Gael is happy for him to continue as a Fine Gael TD despite the fact that he, he lied on his application form to Meath County Council uh, and as a result 
of misleading the council, he ended up getting planning permission for a house that he wouldn't have got otherwise. Fine Gael, happy with that. They're comfortable with that. It would, seems, it would seem they believe that the punishment uh, that he uh, ha- has received, uh, which was having to give up his job as a, a junior minister, is enough. But happy for him to continue in the Fine Gael party as a Fine Gael TD. And as to uh, misleading the council, as to Damien English lying to the council and then gaining personally as a result of that lie, uh, the Taoiseach said, that's a matter for the County Council. Now, since uh, Leo Radker made those comments in the Dáil yesterday, we've asked Mead County Council if uh, they wish to comment on what uh, the Taoiseach had to say, and we'll bring you their response as soon as we receive it. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've heard, I'm sure this week, uh, the government won't be giving over any more time to uh, the questions being asked of uh, the Minister for Public Expenditure, believing uh, that Pascal Donoghue has explained himself at this stage uh, and uh, indeed has apologised for breaking the law because of undeclared election campaign expenses. So it's over to the opposition and Sinn Féin will this evening decide whether it will use its time to use private members' time to move a motion of no confidence in the Minister. Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory Murku is on the line with us and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Would you support the idea of your party tabling a motion of no confidence in Pascal Donoghue? Well, first of all, it's the party leadership that will be meeting and deciding this. Um, I'm not sure I've heard a huge amount of information or, sorry, I've had a huge amount of conversations in the party in relation to whether this should happen or not. I haven't, you know what I mean? Mm. We're obviously caught up here in Leinster House at this point in time and you're literally running between trying to be in three places all at once and all the rest of it. Mm. Now, it was obviously a sufficiently serious issue that um, the minister himself decided that he had to Enter the fray twice, you know what I mean? Mm. I don't think anyone was particularly happy. Oh, I know, and he broke the law and it's dictated the discourse. There's been very little else uh, and it means that other things have been neglected. Uh, CAMS didn't get the attention that it should have received. I know there'll be a big debate this evening, uh, but, you know, really that should have dominated the business of uh, this week. Uh, The overcrowding in emergency departments should have dictated the business of last week. Of course, we've uh, the ongoing problems with housing, we have the immigration problem and there's a long, long list of things that have been pushed aside in order for Pascal Donoghue to take questions predominantly from Sinn Féin uh, and I'm sure many would say rightly so. So uh, what now? Uh, can the government shut it down or will you support Sinn Féin tabling a motion of no confidence in the Minister to put it back on the agenda? Look, it's, it's, it's quite straightforward. You, you, you are correct. I would have been a hell of a lot happier if all of this had been dealt with, you know, last week, I'd have been a lot happier that this issue never came up, that this was dealt in 2017 or in 2022 and had been brought to Pascal Donoghue's attention. And that's the way it should have been done. Um, beyond that, here, I, I'm not sure that there is a huge head of steam in relation to this. You've heard the public discourse in relation to it. 
I'm yeah. not party to it, so I'm not going to make a call in relation to what decision should be made. Okay, the party but leadership that are over this to a greater level of detail will make that determination. Okay, but as a, a party, you've been outraged, you've been appalled. Do you believe it's unacceptable uh, that uh, a minister did not meet the standards expected of somebody in pub- public office, broke the ethics legislation, broke the law? Sinn Féin has broken the law, hasn't it? What you're talking about is the fact that there have been failures and Sinn Féin has put its hands up in relation to... Uh, we're talking about public events that were held in 20... Uh, sorry, in 20... The 2016 well, election. Actually, Sinn Féin didn't actually put its hand up. Uh, Sinn Féin was asked by the Irish Independent. Uh, and oh, no, when no, the, no, when the, the Irish Independent sorry. asked Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin went, oh God, yeah, right. It's very like, it's very like Pascal Donoghue, uh, who uh, was asked uh, uh, by uh, the Irish Times. Um, but... Uh, did Sinn Féin break the law uh, and is it equally guilty of uh, the crime if you like uh, that Pascal Donoghue is said to have committed? Well, let's, let's be clear Sinn Féin didn't make a declaration in relation to I think it's six public events. Most of our events were obviously held in our own quarters or outside where there was no cost to it um, but beyond that you know, we obviously um, didn't put in for a number of events. I think the entirety of all these events came to 2,167, you know, uh, 70 cents. That's being dealt with. But there was also a point of the Royal Irish Academy having been paid an invoice of 600 quid. That has since been paid. That isn't acceptable. It shouldn't have happened. For seven years, was it? Well, here, you, you know yourself, this happened in 2016. So, mm. yeah, you can do it. It's easy enough to, to work that figure out. Mm. You know, that's it. Yeah, no, seven years. It's it's there. It is unacceptable. It's, 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 it's no one's saying it's anything other than embarrassing. I'm sure that there are um, people who are not particularly happy with themselves, and I'm sure that there are others who are not happy with them at this point in time. And mm. from our own point of view, we need to ensure stuff like this doesn't happen. Now, and I don't want to give the same, you know, defence that Pascal Donoghue did of, you know, elections are very busy times and all the rest of it. That's all true. But the fact is that should happen. Now, here, we all, because we've suddenly entered this field of, you know, SIPO election returns. Mm. I think there there is a wider question in relation to, you know, SIPO and oversight, and we realise why we're in that field. We all know if we look back at reeling in the years in relation to the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, that there was a level of corruption you know, that you nearly cannot comprehend at this point in time. So there's an absolute need um, for legislation. There also is a need for legislation to be introduced. It hasn't been that the government has, you know, sat on its hands, particularly SIPO themselves have asked for more powers. Sure, the fact is SIPO can't deal with any of these issues unless a complaint is made to them. They can't just act proactively on their own. That's something that the government needs to do straight away, from a legislative point of view, to mm. ensure that that happens. But but Sinn Féin broke the law. Sinn Féin didn't make declarations, and Sinn Féin... Sinn Féin, broke the, Sinn Féin broke the law. The fact is, there's no standing over this. Sinn Féin didn't pay a bill. But you can't say it. Are you, are you not able to say it? Sinn Féin broke the law. You're able to say Pascal okay. Donoghue broke the law. There, see, in fairness, I haven't made a huge amount of accusations. In no, but Sinn Féin, you're a Sinn Féin representative. Oh, no, no, I am, yeah, and I'm here, yeah, and I'm yeah, representing yeah. the Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is that. able to say, I'm Pascal Donoghue broke the law, it's disgraceful, uh, but can't say Sinn Féin broke the law. Well, what I can say here is what we did is utterly unacceptable, Michael. How much further do you want me to go than that? The fact is, 
it wasn't. It's not the way business should be done in okay. any way, shape, or form. We have rectified okay, it. Well, I'll, I wish Pascal Donahue, when it had been brought to his attention by the media and whoever else, because we're not entirely sure what was brought to his attention in 2017, mm. that he had dealt with this, and we were not in this field. And I'll okay, be honest, is the pot is the pot calling the kettle black? Right, well, I'll I, I'll be clear in relation to this. There's probably a point I wasn't going to make. There's probably a considerable amount of people inside and outside of politics that always said this is a dangerous place to play in the sense that, you know what I mean, everyone even from an individual basis is there. I'm sure a lot of people are going back through their civil returns and thinking is there anything that they possibly left out or, or didn't consider and all the rest of it. And look, mistakes happen. That's, that's, that's life. As I said, the Pascal Donoghue issue is obviously his connection um, with Michael Stone and it's the fact that when it was brought to his attention, he mm. just didn't deal with it quickly. I would also say, from an individual's point of view, the stuff you rarely forget as regards putting in the public domain, making sure that it's you know in on your SIPO uh, election returns, mm. is the stuff that is public because that's that's the main. And particularly when you're talking about a general election, postering is one of the mainstays. You know, it's posters, it's leaflets, it's mm. those particular things that you would always. And beyond that. We're all aware now, even in places, we have to put notional values, you know what I mean, as regards the cost of fuel and all the rest of it. You okay. know what I mean? And yeah, I do. Uh, but can I suggest to you uh, that there's no way you say you, you don't know what the leadership is going to decide, but can I suggest to you that there's no way the leadership would be foolish enough to table a motion of no confidence in Pascal Donoghue as minister because if that happens... The debate is going to centre around the 2,000 undeclared, not paying a bill for seven years, the 1,000 euro that Jonathan Dowdall donated to Mary Lou MacDonald, and the opinion poll that cost 7,000 euro that Sinn Féin forgot to declare. Michael, we all know that when you put in as an opposition party a motion of no confidence, what happens is the government grabs that, throws it to one side, and they put in a motion of confidence. Mm. And in that basis, they get a greater amount of speaking time. So two things happen in that case. They literally spend most of the time extolling themselves and their virtues, and they spend the rest of the time attacking attacking us, or whoever. Mm. And even at times when we haven't brought the motion forward, they spend their time attacking us. Well, that's politics. We'll, we'll, we'll all live with that. Mm. So, yeah, I don't doubt that the leadership and other people are taking that into consideration. Be, be, beyond that, the conversation has probably moved on, in the, you know, as regards within the public domain. You're not happy, sense. obviously, with Sinn Féin. You're not happy with the leadership and how this Pascal Donoghue issue has been handled. This was an issue that wasn't brought up by Sinn Féin. It was put in the public domain. All opposition parties decided, made the decision that there was necessary questions that needed to be asked. I think Pascal Donoghue and the government certainly didn't deal with it well. I think we saw the farcical case last week where questions were asked. There was no direct reply. And then at the very end... Uh, Pascal Donoghue got up, ran down the clock and didn't answer anything yeah. and spoke about how he wasn't going to answer anything. That didn't serve him, didn't but, serve us, didn't serve anyone. Yeah. Any good. And I agree, I am a hell of a lot happier if we are dealing with the issue of CAMS, if we're dealing with overcrowding in hospitals, if we're dealing with the housing crisis. And that's why Mary Lou MacDonald even moved on in relation to the issues that were brought up at Leaders' Questions. Yeah, she went back um, to yeah, the cost of living, I know. Um, because exactly. uh, she was flogging a, a dead horse. Was she on her high horse the day before? Uh, should, uh, shouldn't Fain have taken such a high moral ground? 
here, as I said before, and I think it's been accepted across the board, that's by the media and the public, that there were questions that needed to be answered. And do I think that mm. everything has been answered perfectly? No. Do I think it could have been done better by Pascal Is Donahue? it an own goal, yes. though? Uh, or, and does Pascal Donoghue deserve a, an apology at this stage? Uh, because it seems as though uh, you're both two sides of uh, the same ethics coin, if you like. No, look, first of all, Pascal Donoghue is the minister who well, was responsible with SIPO. Obviously, there are going to be governmental changes in relation to this. This was an issue that had significant importance from his point of view to recuse himself from dealing with policy matters as relate to SIPO. But as I said, we've had multiple uh, we've had multiple years of not dealing with the SIPO, the legislation and the powers that are required by SIPO. That's the real issue that we could take out of this whole period, is we provide the powers, the legislation, the correct amount of accountability and oversight to SIPO, and that will benefit all of us and will benefit politics across the board. Right. I think that's, that's fair to say. But the Minister still has, and there is a SIPO investigation, they're going to make whatever determination, mm. and look, Sinn Féin will make whatever decision it makes today. Okay, uh, and Sinn Féin uh, will also be investigated by SIPO. If somebody has put in a complaint in relation, and SIPO deem it worthwhile, that that happens in any case. That's that's open for anybody to do at this point in time. Look, I think Sinn has been absolutely straight in the sense of here it was brought to our attention. We rectified in the sense of the payments. We are rectifying in relation to SIPO returns. But the fact is, should it have happened? No. Was it sloppy? Most definitely. Uh, I'd like to think this wouldn't happen again. We need to look at our own protocols in relation to that. And as I say, I'm not going to throw out excuses of elections are busy times. They okay. are, but that's the business we're in. We all know the reason for these for SIPO legislation. We all know the bad history there has been in this state over many, many years and that the absolute necessity for it. So okay. bring on the legislation. And yes, I'm a lot happier dealing with the big issues of the day. And unfortunately, none of them moving to a particularly positive place anytime soon, my boss. All right, we'll leave there. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, do appreciate you coming on to talk to us about that. That's uh, local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Murakou, uh, who represents Louth and East Meath. Now, going back uh, to the issue of Damien English and uh, if Meath County Council is going to take any other action, we heard the Taoiseach earlier on saying that's a matter for Meath County Council to decide. Uh, and uh, as I said to you earlier on, uh, we did ask Meath County Council if that was its intention or not. Uh, it seems as though uh, we're not going to be told uh, about uh, the lies uh, that Damien English uh, made when he filled out that application form. Uh, the Meath County Council, uh, in other words, is not going to make a statement on Damien English's application because uh, the council says it has been and continues to be the policy of the council not to comment on any aspect of individual planning applications. And thanks to Meath County Council for that statement. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's seven organisations active for Retirement Ireland, Age and Opportunity, Alone, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, the Irish Hospice Foundation, the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament and Third Age who've come together to form a new alliance, the Alliance of Age Sector. Uh, and they've published a report called 
telling it like it is combating ageism. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sue Shaw, who is uh, the CEO of uh, the Senior Citizens Parliament and on uh, the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Sue, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us a a little bit more uh, about the thinking behind this uh, alliance and why you believe uh, we need an independent commissioner for ageing and older people in this country. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your readers. I'm sorry there for cutting across you. Yes, um, I am representing the Age Alliance. This is our second report. The first report was in relation to uh, the pandemic and COVID-19 and how that impacted on older people. Arising from that, um, we moved towards a second report. So really what we're saying is that ageism has serious and far-reaching consequences for people's health and well-being and their human rights. The World Health Organization has set out the numerous and harmful ways in how it affects a shorter lifespan, diminished mental and physical capacity, isolation, lost commitment to the workplace, cognitive decline and reduced quality of life. Mm. When it's internalised, people actually can see that you shorten your life by 7.5 years. And it's very hard for anybody not to internalise the messages that we receive. All of the descriptions, all of the stories and all of the language around older people promote ageing as that of an unavoidable decline. We're told an ageing society is a tsunami waiting to happen. And when we have reduced resources, which we are in that space at the moment, then we're looking at tensions created around who's taking the resources. For us, we want this challenged. We believe that the best way to do that is a commissioner for older people. The examples are there. We have a commissioner for children. We have an ombudsman for children. We have set up commissioners for other other pieces of work. And it has made a serious difference. At the moment, we have no coherent active policy in place that is being implemented for older people and for the reality of an ageing demographic. And how would it make you live seven and a half years longer if we had one? I think what happens is when we internalise uh, all, like if you think of it, you only have to think if you go out your front door in the morning, even before you go out your front door mm. in the morning. The consistent messaging is that ageing is something to fear. You know, would you like your? Would you like to regrow that hair? You'd be treated differently in the workplace. Would mm. you like? You know, grey doesn't suit you. Aging, younger. The promotion is consistently about younger is better. People internalise that message. So mm. what happens then? That gets internalised. So we see it in the mm. workplace. So depending on what you're talking about, Michael, yeah. we see that at 45, people are deemed too old to work. Mm. And they go for job interviews and the stats are there to back it up. Okay, but is is younger not better? I mean, we all no. get we all get our go uh, and we're all young people at some stage uh, and eventually we all get old. Uh, do we not have to accept that we're getting older? Oh, we're all for accepting that we're getting older. And, and what goes no with problem. that, whether that's hair loss or, or, or not being as capable uh, at certain things as young people are. To be very honest with you, I'd argue the toss a little bit about whether we're as capable. It isn't about whether you, it, it, it's a bit like that's going back to the room of the gender equality argument. Yeah. Are men better than women? And we won't go down that road. But it's not that younger people are better or older people. Anna, are hold on, hold on a second. You remember when you were a little girl, Sue, and your mother used to say to you, "Don't be running." 
Uh, when was the last time you ran anywhere? You were, if you're like Believe me... Believe it or not, if, I ran yesterday. <laughs> well, fair dog. enough. I ran well, up three flights of stairs. Okay. No, I'm not arguing. No, that, 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 that backfires on me, but I, I, I know I'm not capable of running the way I used no. to be when I was a little boy, if you know what I mean. I know. I, to be honest with you, that's the, the, there isn't that there isn't a difference as we age. Mm. It's how we treat the difference. The bottom line is we are very clear in policy. And like apart from the reality of accepting what happens as we age, accepting that, what we're saying is the world doesn't accept it very well. The world pinpoints it as a, as a, a very negative piece. Mm. That has been proven. Health the research is into health, which was really, really frightening, Michael, has shown that at, within the health profession, ageism is alive and kicking. So depending on your age, when you go for something, mm. it's whether you're offered treatment or not. It isn't about your lifestyle. It isn't about your current health. It isn't about your fitness. It is entirely related to your age. Yeah. And people have been refused treatment based on age. Yeah, well, that's true, yeah. Mm. And that applies across a range of areas. Equally, I would say to you, Michael, people who are 45, 50 going for a job are not too old to do the job. Depending on the job, if you're asking me, could I run the Olympics? No, I can't. Mm. Can I do my job that I'm doing now? Yes, I can. Mm. So I think it's relative and we're asking for that to be unpicked. And but could you work in a fashion retail outlet, you know, where there's teenagers and people in their 20s coming in to buy the latest fashions? I'm sure you could, uh, but is it ages to say, I prefer the job to be done by a young person? Best look, to be very honest with you, uh, there's no argument that there are certain areas that, like, if I want my washing machine plumbed, I'm going to go for a plumber, I'm not looking for an electrician. The bottom line is, if I want, there's a range of closed doors that cater to different categories for children we don't ask children to send children clothes but at the end of the day what I would be saying there are a range of categories that I would say yeah if I go into a shop and I want to relate to the person I'm talking mm. to if I have a difficulty relating to a teenager when I'm buying clothes well fine I'll go look for that yeah. the issue is more pervasive I think that there are issues at the local level but when it translates into policy around employment around retirement around how we're treated for health treatments then I think we're moving it up a notch or two so what we're clearly saying is and like I'm very mm. clearly speaking to ageism for older people young people could talk to you really well about this as well so ageism is across the board in, in those two categories and when we have somebody as serious as the World Health Organisation challenging it seriously because they are seeing and as we have an ageing demographic across the in, in across a wide range of countries, when we're saying this is something that's got to be tackled because it's impacting, I think we need to take it seriously. Mm. I do argue that there are certain things I could say, absolutely a younger person can do differently to me, but I can do things differently to them. It isn't about better or worse, and I wouldn't want to in any way create that. Mm. But what we are saying is, Let's try and rebalance that description of other people as of no longer value to society. Okay, uh, you talked about health. Uh, I was just reading uh, yesterday, I think, that there's about 10,000 10, people over the age of 75 who have been waiting more than 18 months for an outpatient procedure. It's an incredible statistic. But it's terrifying. But is that just because they're old? No, well, I think there's a multiple layers in there. I think our health system, as I mean, I'm sure you were doing interviews and we've all been mm. doing them across the last few weeks. Well, I mean, you don't have 20-year-olds waiting for a cataract. You don't have 15-year-olds waiting for a hip replacement. I mean, these are the kind of things that feed into these figures, aren't they? 
partially yes, but it, it depends, Michael. I think if you if you take out where we have areas of health that are particularly related to an aging piece, but equally, that's like saying, well, it's based on. I think we need to be really careful about the hip replacement pieces and the knee replacement. I mean. I, the amount of sports people who end up because they're in highly active. I worked with a young woman who was going for a hip replacement. She was in her 30s because she was a, a runner. Mm. So I don't think it's only about that. And I'm sure if you unpicked the amount of people on the waiting list, you could have categories of different people. Mm. And we're not saying that ageing brings with it its its own issues. Okay. The point is, it's how we treat ageing and how we are putting that group as a homogenous group that are past their prime of no value to society when in fact the opposite is true. Okay, let, 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 me, huge let, let me ask you another question Sue, uh, and I'm including <laughs> myself in this uh, as an older person if you like, but doesn't a, a time come that we need to get out of the way to give younger people the opportunity that we'd be denying them by taking that place in the workplace or wherever it is? I don't fully agree with that statement. No, I don't think so. They have research has actually shown when you have a blend of older and younger workers, your companies are more productive. Mm. So it isn't about saying, well, you're blocking my route to promotion. It's mm. about how do we, and there are some of the things that Commissioner for Older People would ensure that we took that broader look at it. Mm. Where is it working successfully? What are the issues that need to be? I'm okay. not saying people don't have to retire. Okay. I'm very clearly saying that no. It's a little... You but know, if, if, there's, little if, there's, like, if there's a young woman who wants to go into retail and it's ageist not to employ somebody over 45 and uh, the older person gets the job, well then, you know, you're denying somebody the opportunity to start on the ladder. If you look at possibly the greatest DJ that ever was in this country, Larry Gogan, uh, retiring uh, in his 80s, wasn't it? I don't think he, he moved over to Lyric or somewhere. Um, uh, but I mean, the national. He wasn't blocking uh, anybody's progression progression route in, in his field. No, but but, think but 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 I mean, if you had if you, if you had pop radio stations full of old people, there wouldn't be that opportunity for young people to start off or or whatever. They're just a couple of examples that come to mind, and that's what I mean by yeah. getting in the way. Interestingly enough, on that mm, point, yeah. the amount of attri- the amount of tribute paid to Larry Gold he was, was moving yeah. over, yeah. where yeah. from a range of young people he had championed in yeah. their music career it, that it, they wouldn't have got an opening. Oh, I know that. And if he was here now, he'd be saying to you, "Some of the questions I'm asking you don't suit you." But you know. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm clearly saying is that, and the young girl who wants to start in the retail trade, that 45 year old has still got to pay her bills. Mm. She has still got to feed herself. Mm. She won't collect a pension at 45. Mm. So therefore, where are we suggesting she go to work to make space for this? Okay, but when she Even was 25, people, when she was 25, did she not realise that someday she was going to end up being 45? Well, are you saying we should move retirement to 45? And move <laughs> well, <it>? OK, if, <laughs> if that's a proposal, I won't argue. <laughs> I'm not proposing that at all. Mm, yeah. I'm clearly saying it's unrealistic to look that if our only way of progression is to move people with a high skill base in their 40s, 50s and 60s mm. out of the space to make younger, then that's why we need a commissioner for older people to look across mm. that and say, how do we do this better?
Okay. I hope uh, you agree that uh, we've had a, a real conversation about uh, some of the reasons why people feel uh, that they're being discriminated against because of uh, their age. Uh, the alliance of the age sectors NGOs, which is the seven groups uh, which I mentioned at the start, which includes the Senior Citizens Parliament, has launched this report telling it like it is combating ageism. So thanks a million for talking to us. Not at all, Michael. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. Okay, Susha of the Senior Citizens Parliament. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks uh, to Deirdre and Kells who says uh, Mike DJ Chris Murray has a big birthday coming up soon. Uh, I think she's uh, probably feeling uh, maybe time to move over. Give some young people an opportunity. No lad like him. Uh, Somebody else says running has absolutely nothing to do uh, with needing a hip replacement. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, mean to conflate the two. Didn't uh, mean that at all. John says uh, when it comes to older people, in hospitals, I agree with Sue Shaw, particularly in hospitals, older people become invisible. Claire says that the country is falling apart. And here we have all this talk about a few euro. Come on, talk about the real stuff. Stop this bull. We don't want to be listening to that rubbish about posters and ethics and all that stuff. Margaret said there would be no war in Europe if Vladimir Putin, Vlad the bully, hadn't invaded Ukraine. If he's allowed to get away with this, where will he go next? I a poor war, but a poor, power-hungry, dictating, greedy bullies even more. That's what Putin is. He wants the USSR put back together again so he won't stop with Ukraine if he's not stopped. Thanks, Margaret. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us. Now, as you've been hearing, Freedom of Information figures show that over 2,000 people have been prosecuted for domestic violence over the course of the past four years. The statistics are very interesting in that they rose rapidly from 2019 onwards. In 2019, there were 252 prosecutions, 507 in 2020. It goes up to 629 in 2021 and 612 last year. Let's speak to to Anne Larkin, Services Manager with Dundalk Women's Aid. A very good morning to you, Anne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Those figures were given to Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward. What do you make of them? Do you believe that more people are taking uh, charges uh, or or, or is it that uh, there's more cases of domestic violence? I would say that, first of all, Michael, thanks very much for the opportunity to talk again to you this morning. Oh, you're always welcome. Um, I would say that there's a combination of things that have um, brought us to this, To you know, if you look at it, like what st- stood out to me when I looked at the figures, 2020 saw a figure of 507, but 2020 also saw um, the mobilisation of Operation Fuishiv from Angarda Siakana. So, and that came about as, you know, on Gardashia Corner, the, the whole concerns around lockdown, around COVID, there was increased awareness of the potential danger to women and children at home. Um, so I would be looking at that and seeing, the, you know, there was a very positive uh, move on behalf of on Gardashia Corner. Um, and I think you can see the prosecutions um, are up because of that increased awareness um, and follow up by Angada Shiakana. There's been a huge um, shift in attitude in the guards, hasn't yes. there? Yeah, yeah. We would we would see that. Yeah. Now there's more work to be done, but you know that was you know if if anything you know there's very little positive out of COVID nineteen out of COVID, but what we saw in terms of the response uh, to domestic violence and even the understanding that with the circumstances and the change in environment that COVID brought, it 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 made people really think and see 
the real danger that women and children were in in the homes. So that's part of it. Um, and then once that began, you know, you can see it's continued because with that then the increase in awareness, the increase in understanding. The, but again, part of it too is our obligation under the Istanbul Convention because mm-hmm. under the Istanbul Convention, there's four pillars, Michael. One of them is prevention. Second one is protection. The third one is prosecution. And then the fourth one is policy coordination. So we're looking at seeing the the country begin to pull a cohesive response into this because you you know you can only protect so far there has to be consequences to the behaviour of men who abuse uh, women and children and who ultimately can kill women and children Um, so we're seeing that start because if you know previously to this I think a number of years ago there was a report done on the number of breaches of DV orders and on the, the prosecutions for the breaches, as well as prosecution for the actual uh, infliction of domestic violence. So when perpetrators start to see that there's sanctions and that there's consequences for the behaviour, you would be hoping that you will start to see that work mm. uh, in conjunction with all the other uh, efforts that's been made to reduce and ultimately eliminate domestic violence. And when women realise, uh, because it's predominantly women who are the victim, uh, that yes. uh, they uh, are, are not responsible for what's being done to them, yes. it, it is not usual, it is abnormal, it is yes. terribly wrong, it's criminal, uh, and that there is help at hand, uh, well then that also helps bring about a change. You spoke about awareness and that's exactly what yes. that's about. Uh, and uh, that's why it's always a pleasure to have you on the programme and to tell people that there is help at hand. Thank you very much Michael and yeah that's massive and like you have to acknowledge I've spoken to you quite a number of times now over the past few years and that all helps like there'll be women uh, listening at home today, there will be families listening at home, there will be fathers and mothers aunties, uncles, cousins friends of women who are going through this and at least there's an aware there's information going out and when you see, you know, when you see these figures being published you know, there is a response happening. Mm. Now, there's a long way to go yet, but there's a lot happening. As I say to you, there is a national, there's a zero strategy policy, which has taken account of the reality for women and children. Things have to change at government level. We will see legislation come forward. But in the meantime, there's a whole lot can be done at, mm. at the, on the ground level. There's domestic violence services all around the country. We're here in Dundalk, there's a service in Drogheda and there's a service in Navan. And we would say to women and to anyone concerned about the friends or family members, give us a ring and we can talk to you about, we can supply information and support. But most importantly, when a woman rings in and begins to talk, that's her beginning her journey to safety, nice. to reclaiming her life. And it's not always violent. I wonder sometimes if uh, a different uh, turn of phrase, a, a different description, definition should be used on domestic violence uh, because mm. I, I think there's probably women listening to us uh, this morning who say, well, he's not violent. He never hit me. Uh, yeah. he, he, really, he, he annoys me. Uh, yeah. I, I wish he, he treated me differently. I, I wish yeah. he treated me fairly. I, w- I wish he treated me equally. I wish he wasn't insisting on looking at my phone or deciding how much money I have or can spend or what I do or what I where all these other things, which quite often can be the beginning of a dangerous route, can't it? 100%, Michael. What you're talking about there is, and what we've seen develop over the years, like there's a huge amount of work and research has gone into this 
you know, um, dynamic of domestic abuse and coercive control. And yeah, the language is changing. It's moving from domestic violence because it does kind of imply that unless it's physical, you are not actually being abused. Mm. But there's, you know, we are moving forward because domestic abuse and coercive control encompasses Mm. physical, sexual, financial, emotional, psychological, We're going to give out, I'm sorry, all those types of of things. But uh, I mean, just to try and put it into some real perspective for people listening to us uh, this morning, we're going to give out your phone number in a moment because people can ring you. Um, If uh, somebody rings you uh, and uh, they've been assaulted, uh, I mean, that's straightforward. Uh, But if somebody was to call you and say, he keeps looking at my phone and uh, I don't want him to, uh, would would you think that's stupid? Would, Would they be silly to call you? Absolutely not, because that's, you know, we're all entitled to our own privacy. And if you're in a relationship and that relationship is healthy, there's an element of trust and respect for each other. So, you know, it is not stupid. It, it's a, it's the beginning of control being um, exerted over that person. It's an invasion into our life. It's the perpetrator is seeking to have control mm. in that area of our life. Um so no, it's not okay. Controlling um, money, controlling clothing, controlling uh, who she sees, who she sees, when they see, where she goes. Yeah, yeah. any of those things. Uh, if there's something like that, yeah, yeah. And you know, it often starts, Michael, with something very um, subtle. You mm. know, at the beginning of the isolation of a woman from her friends, her family, and her support network can be very subtle. It can be, you know, couched in love and affection mm. and I want to spend time with you. Mm. But that coincides with a time where maybe she was going to go and visit her friends mm. or visit her mum or a night out with the girls. Yeah. So it's very insidious and very subtle. Um, so, so absolutely, anyone phoning mm. us, if you have any concern, your instinct doesn't be wrong. You get, to, you know, you get yeah. a sense that this just doesn't seem right. Mm. If you have any kind of a sense of that, talk to us. Yeah. You know, and you will find that, you know, what you're feeling is accurate. Um, And what we find, Michael, when women talk to us, we take the position that women who contact us are coming to us from a position of strength because they're inquiring about whether their situation is safe, is healthy, is normal. And as I say to you, your instinct Mm -hmm. doesn't let you down. Okay. Uh, The telephone number 042-9333. Two double four. That's 042 Women's age. We're 24 hours, yeah. Michael. 24 hours a day. Yes, you're, 24 hours You're yeah. on social media. You're, you'll find yeah. Women's Aid, Dundalk Women's Aid, uh, across uh, all of the usual platforms. And uh, you're yeah. at the end of the phone as well. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us and indeed for the great service that you provide to so many people. That's Anne Larkin, the service manager with Dundalk Women's Aid. Michael Reed on LMFM. I think a lot of us have uh, felt despondent uh, this week hearing uh, the ordeal that Richard has gone through trying to save his 16-year-old daughter's life. Uh, She's been in a crisis, needed serious psychiatric help, uh, help that wasn't available despite everything that he did and he did everything possible to get help for his daughter. Uh, We spoke to Richard last time yesterday in Tala Hospital uh, and things didn't look good. Richard is back with us now this morning. Good morning Richard and thank you indeed uh, for coming back to us. Have things improved? Yeah, good morning Michael. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm happy to say that they they have improved. Um, After a a, a meeting with uh, 
a CAMS team from uh, St. Joseph's Unit, who are based in St. Vincent's Hospital in Fairview, yesterday afternoon. Um, they, they did a screening assessment of myself and Amy, and um, they agreed to uh, her, her placement in the unit. Um, and they, they basically told us at that stage the plan was to uh, to accept her in at about half ten this morning. So that was great, um, but we 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 still facing another twenty four hours in in, uh, in Tala Hospital on the on bench you were talking well, about yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They you know for the third consecutive day and 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 day I've got to lose count at this stage. Mike, mm-hmm. day ten, day eleven of Amy's ordeal since since you know the incident. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So so anyway, look. What happened then yesterday evening was we got a, a call last minute to say that they changed the plans and they were going to move her down at half seven. So initially they had said I was to bring her down myself in the morning at half ten, and then all of a sudden they changed to her being transferred by an ambulance crew um, at half seven in the evening. So something must have happened in the background. Somebody must have said something. Um, mm. Obviously, the, the, the hospital themselves still weren't prepared to budge on their policy that that she wasn't deemed a patient and well, therefore had no rights of admission. Um, you, you've you've managed to move mountains, uh, which I, is just no, you, dreadful. You did, and, 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 your well, and everyone you, was. Yeah, you you you've gone public with it, which I, I think probably uh, brought a, a lot to bear on how this decision was made. And I know that a, a number of local TDs got involved as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, there, there were you know quite a number of TDs uh, that you helped me get in touch with, and that I had contacted personally as well. And um, you know, I think I have to special mention to Mel the Monster, who who was fantastic. Um, you know, from the very outset, she she was on to me straight away. And um, she actually had uh, a very strong letter um, uh, written to uh, Des O'Flynn, mm. who is the now. Let, let me just get his title right. Um, uh, he, he's the chief officer of the HSE unit for loud needs. So um, that's you know you know we've been hearing about some of the reports from the cams. Uh, um, scandal, if you want, like and and, and the, the the reviews that have taken place. So so the the need the, the loud need area CHO eight, and there's nine of those units in the country. So as we talked about previously, Michael, that you know five of those units have been reviewed and four have been found to have serious issues with them. And and, and CHO eight, which is the loud need area, has yet to be reviewed. Mm. So he's in charge of that unit, and uh, and now wrote a very strong letter to him, looking for urgent updates on on on. Know our, our uh, situation and what they were going to do about mm. it. I think, I, I think the response was that you went against the vi- advice of uh, the local psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have a copy of the letter, unfortunately, mm. that, that was sent to Mel. She read it out to me over the phone as it was done in Tallahassee yesterday. Mm. I was absolutely shocked. Uh, and it. had you taken the advice of the local psychiatrist, uh, what would have happened? Um. Look, I, 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 I dread to think, you know, um, they, the only advice that they could officially give me was to take her home and wait for a bed to come available. Mm. And the, was it a community care pro- programme or something? Yeah, so th- that's that's what was in the letter. Now, they mm. didn't, when I met with the psychiatrist in, in, uh, in CAMS on, on Monday, 
just gone. Uh, that's not how it was worded to me. What 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 they basically said to me was that, um, you know, they understand we had been discharged from Our Lady of Lords and that um, they ha- were making a referral for an urgent, um, yeah. uh, for urgent residential accommodation place yeah. for Amy, but that would take time. They couldn't say when it would be and we've been through this before. Like, it's, yeah. not, it's not that they can, you know, it's not like a hospital where you can just mm. bring somebody in and, and they'll be looked after. Um, you have to wait for a bed to come available. So, so we we didn't know when that was going to be yeah. on the, Monday. Your daughter needed to be admitted to a psychiatric ward so that she could be observed and treated, exactly. uh, and uh, that uh, you could feel safe. Uh, yeah, th- yeah. That, that and she, I know that she would be safe. Yeah. And and on Monday, what they what they did for me was give me. She put in an appointment for Wednesday, for an hour, and she mm. put in an appointment in her diary for Friday for an hour. Right. That in the event that we mm. have a crisis. So, in the meantime, we so you back. said, no, I can't take that risk. You went to Tala, no. you called the radio station, you went public, you yeah. caused a fuss. Uh, I mean, I think I know so many people are very um, uh, taken aback by how strong you've been through all of this while you're trying to deal with uh, this crisis in the family to do all of that publicly. Uh, and then to get the TDs on board and literally to move mountains. Uh, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, uh, who've found themselves in similar situations saying, how how did he get a bed for her? They don't exist. Uh, but your yeah. da- your daughter is in a bed this morning. Yeah. Uh, and As we speak, yeah. Do do you feel safe? Do you feel she's safe? I do, Michael. Yeah, I do. Um, the fantastic team out there in St Joseph's met us last night, and um, you know the. But again, I keep saying there's there's been kind of little miracles have happened along the way. You know, not least last week when when the teacher in the school found Amy, and and. You know, I, I, I'd have to credit her with saving her life. Um, but also the ambulance drivers last night. So again, we weren't supposed to have an ambulance. I was meant to just bring her in my car. And the, the ambulance drivers that came last night were just fantastic. They, Amy just uh, didn't want to go. She was frightened out of her life. Um, the situation that we endured for the past 10 days obviously hadn't helped. I, I can only imagine that her anxiety, you know, was at levels she'd never experienced before, you know, um, you know, fear and nervousness and trepidation, all those emotions, like, just piling up inside her, but the guys came in, they put their gear down, and one of the lads just sat down on the floor beside her, she was in tears, and he just spent, oh, over an hour just chatting to her about stuff, not about, Mm -hmm. like, the situation, not about going to where we were going, just... He calmed her down and he, he got her, you know, on side. And um, yeah, I just yeah. I couldn't believe it. He was brilliant, and and the girl that was with him as well in the ambulance, they were just a pair of them were brilliant. They they managed to talk her around and get her to actually leave the hospital, um, and come into the ambulance. Mm-hmm. And then of course when we got to the unit, again the the the, the fears and and everything built up in her again, and she didn't want to go in. And the entire team there at, at St Joseph's were trying to persuade her and get her, you know, but. Uh, it was the ambulance drivers in the end, the two okay. staff there that, that, that talked um, her in, like they alone. Yeah. Thank goodness, uh, Richard. Yeah. Uh, she's getting the care that she needs, the care she deserves, and uh, the care that you would expect in a, a civilised society. Yeah. Richard, uh, I'm sorry you had to go public and tell such a, a personal story. I hope your daughter is well and gets better. 
uh, and has uh, a long, bright future uh, ahead of her with thanks to her dad who has worked tirelessly, it has to be said. Michael, I just, you know, if I can say one thing, you know, there's been some great response to your show from listeners and, um, you know, a lot of people had had made comments on on various sites and, and forums and chats and stuff. And if I just ask that if, if anyone out there is touched by this story, that use that emotion now and email the Minister for Health, the Minister for Mental Health. The, the, their emails can be found online. Email a, a TD as well. Just just CC the them or whatever you know, all on one email. And, and if, if anyone is touched by this or knows anyone that's affected, please just just do that today. Do that one thing. Voice your 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 anger at this situation because. I'm not the only one that you know is, is is fighting for their child. There's there's thousands of parents throughout this country are faced with the same situation, the same crisis. That you know the, the, the mental health services for for adolescents and children is just appalling, and, and something needs to change, and it has to happen soon. You know, but for the sake of our children's lives. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Best wishes to you and your family, and thank you for joining us. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.